There is not? Okay. Uh, would you run down to the other side and grab that as people can sign up on their way out today, Danny? Would you mind doing that? And five-year-olds are dismissed. If you five and under, you can go with Pastor Danny, too. Or somebody run over there. I'm sure he'll get somebody together. Second of all, two things are coming up. One is deacon elections, so be prayerfully thinking, considering who can be elected as a new deacon at the church. It is also that time of year where we are doing our new church calendar starting September. You may be asked to serve in a various place or position, so be prepared for somebody to call you or send you text, grab you and ask you for something soon. Be praying about that. And then I've signed us up to do covered bridge days down here for uh, you know the fall celebration. They're doing it in September this year. So we're going to do one-hour time slots to be there, be in prayer, and we're going to hand out some mints and do a drawing for like a basket with a Bible, prayer journal, things like that in it. And you're going to have a chance to buy a t-shirt from Grace Baptist Church. Isn't that exciting? Okay, thank you. Uh, I thought everybody would be like, ooh. All right, let me try again. You're going to be able to buy a t-shirt here at Grace Baptist Church. There you go. That's good. Now, let me tell you a couple of things about these t-shirts because, you know, like I need another t-shirt, right? We have picked the softest material for this t-shirt possible. So this is like pajama quality soft, all right? You're going to want to wear it, not just when you're doing covered bridge days. You're going to wear it out in the town and let people know, not only do you enjoy being at Grace Baptist Church with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you are a big fan of comfort as well, right? So you're letting them all know. Because I only like t-shirts that are comfortable, don't you? So studies show that you only wear about 20% of the clothes in your closet this t-shirt's going to be in the 20%. I can just about guarantee it. It's almost a guarantee or your money back, okay? So you get ready. $15 is all it's going to take. Even if you don't serve for Cover Bridge, order yourself a t-shirt anyway. It's going to have the logo on the pocket. It's going to have our mission statement on the back. Embrace, equip, engage. That's all, that's all it is. So it's real simple. And you, you be saving up your pennies here because we're going to try to get that order turned in in August, all right? So you'll be thinking about that. Okay, let me catch us back up to speed. This is part two. Uh, it's been said, any good sermon is like bologna. It can be cut anywhere you need to cut it and keep going. So we had to cut it last week short. We're going to finish the sermon from last week. If you weren't here last week, let me quick you, quickly give you a reminder. This section of Scripture, 1 through 24, has four major movements. First movement is Jesus sending out the 72, much like he did the 12. He didn't give them anything to go out there. We talked about how they were outnumbered, how they were in real danger as they were sent out among the wolves. It was urgent, and we talked about people of peace. Second movement is rejecting that some people would not receive the message and the instructions on how they're to do that. We talked about the impending judgment that we all face, and that's pretty much all the time I had for the first two movements of the text. And so it brings us down now to verse 17. So, Jeff, if you'll get us down to 17, that's where I'm going to start. And we're going to go from 17 to 24 in chapter 10 of Luke this morning. And we're going to, we're going to kick off from there. So here we are with the return. Now, I'm just going to make this as an observation in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the only one that use this, uses this unique term for return. And so you see it multiple times in his gospel over and over again. This is a theme he wants you to see. And uh, there's something about that here. We see that the 72 is coming back from being rejected, from casting out demons, but more importantly, from leading people into salvation. Let me say one more thing before I read this text, and then I will read it, I promise. Many places in the gospels, many places, it tells us where Jesus is sorrowful. It tells us where Jesus is brokenhearted over what he's observing. This is one of the only places where we find 
what Jesus rejoices over. So you know what that means for you? You need to pay close attention to the text this morning and see what is it that Jesus rejoices over. And, not, and then the next step from that should be what? Therefore, I should what? Rejoice over what Jesus rejoices over as well, right? Let's look at this in the text together. Here we go. God's Word. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I'm giving you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus rejoices in the Father's will. Verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the, what's it say, church? Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you. What's the next word, church? Who's praying this prayer? Jesus. So what do you have? Holy Spirit, Father, Son. What do you got in this passage? You have the Trinity right here, right? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me (coughs) by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. And anyone who the Son chooses to reveal Him. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of His holy, inerrant, infallible Word. I pray He writes this truth on our hearts today. I want to ask you a question. What do you delight in? What do you delight in? What is the thing that when you talk about it, the person, the thing, the place, the whatever, you can't help but smile? Because it brings you a level of joy that is almost contagious when you talk to other people about it. Right? What is that thing? Listen, um, I'm on the tail end of Gen X or on the old end of millennial, so I'm either a millennial old. <laughs> Some of you will get that later. Or I'm a young Gen Xer. And one thing I'll tell you about Gen Xers is that they're very cynical, right? <laughs> Gen Xers have seen a lot of fall of a lot of things, a lot of distrust of institutions. And one thing about cynicism is it's tiring, right? Do you ever get tired of hearing cynicism? I get tired of hearing cynicism. I get tired of hearing cynicism from myself. It's always a joy to hear somebody delighting in something. Something as silly as like Star Wars Clone Wars, right? Some people really delight in that cartoon series, The Clone Wars, right? And sometimes it's just refreshing to hear somebody delight in something and not be a cynic of everything, okay? How many of you have ever heard of a pastor from the 1700s named John Newton? Has anybody ever heard of John Newton before? Okay, that's more than I thought. How many of you have ever heard the song Amazing Grace? Raise your hand. Oh, who was the author of Amazing Grace? John Newton. Let me tell you something about John Newton. Do you know there's a guy that wrote a bibliography on him? And it's a great bibliography. And here's one of the things he highlights in that book. He said that John Newton loved his wife dearly. Galt went on to say he delighted in his wife. In fact, 
He delighted in his wife so much that at times, her name was Polly, I think she worried that there was a competition because of the way he fiercely delighted and loved her for uh, her, uh, for him to love her too much. Now, wouldn't that be a great problem that the husbands in our church, that the wives get together and they say, you know, one of the problems in my marriage is my husband loves me so much, I fear sometimes that he is misplacing that love and he direct, needs to direct more of that to the Lord. I would love to have wives have conversations like that in the hallway. Uh, now, a couple things you need to know though, about Polly and John Newton's relationship. First of all, Polly was not known for her earthly beauty necessarily. Okay, um, I don't know how to nicely say that, but I don't think Polly was ugly by, by any stretch of the imagination for her day, but I don't think she was winning any beauty contest, all right? Uh, she, um, she probably looked average for the time. In addition to this, Polly was not known for being a rigorous academic, so she didn't have the top IQ for her time, probably of average intellect as well. So there was not anything that the wider culture would look at and say, my, 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 look at how, uh, what, a, what a wife John Newton has landed for himself. In fact, it often was to the curiosity of John Newton's fellow pastors why he delighted in Polly so much. And after Polly passed away, John Newton actually re- released a book of letters and little things and, and adorations that he had like written poems for his wife and released it in book form for the other husbands in Britain to watch. And, you know, guys in Britain and other pastors in Britain got nervous because they said, this book's going to make all of us look bad as husbands because we don't love our wives the way John Newton loved Polly, right? Well, after the book was released, one of his good pastor buddies asked him one day, um, he, his name, uh, let's see if I've got it here in my notes. I had it just a minute ago. It was a fellow pastor at the day and time there in the 1700s. He asked him, he said, why, why do you love her? Why do you delight her so like, like you do whenever she is the way that she is? And, uh, and this was, this was Newton's reply. And this is the whole point I've been building up to here. Okay. Um, Newton said this, some women are like pineapples. Stay with me. Stay with me. Okay. (laughs) Some women are like pineapple. What they are cannot be appreciated only in seeing, but in experiencing. Right? Pineapples don't really, I personally don't think pineapples look particularly appetizing. Do you think so? I mean, they're kind of this weird looking fruit thing. But I'm going to tell you something. I love to eat pineapple. The experience of pineapple is by far greater still. One of my favorite flavors and smells, right? And so I think you see the point Newton is making, don't you? Newton here was conscious of the limitations of his wife. Newton and his wife loved one another deeply in a way that almost scared some husbands and wives because they didn't have the same type of relationship. They talked about struggling with idolatry because their love was so deep for one another. Uh, and, you know, if there was ever to be marital problems in the church, those are some marital problems I would love to have to address as a pastor. Usually it's the opposite. It's because someone hasn't loved a spouse as they're being called to love. Um, so this morning, the question comes back around to this. 
What is it you delight in? What is the thing that you have no problem clearing your calendar for? It's not an issue because you want to do it, you delight in it. What is the thing that money seems to just fly to? It's not an issue. It doesn't even feel like you're spending the money because you delight in it and you enjoy it to that degree. What do you delight in? Back to the scripture here. What were these disciples doing? They're coming back from being on this trip. They've been rejected by some. They've shaken the sandals of dust as a testimony against those people that rejected them. And they have been able to cast out evil spirits. They have been able to cure those who were sick. They have been able to lead some to conversion and salvation, right? And they're coming back and they're talking on the way. Can't you almost hear them as they're coming back to talk to Jesus, as they're returning to him to give that report of what happened and share and have that encouragement? I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Have you? I haven't seen anything like that before in my life. That was amazing. That, that child was speaking a different language. That child was demon-possessed. We saw him levitate. And you spoke in Jesus' name, and the Spirit came out. That was incredible. I don't know if I'll ever see anything like that again. And you can hear them rejoicing in what they have been able to do and what they have been able to accomplish. And Jesus here is saying, hold on. Let's think about this for just a minute, right? Because what you delight in says a lot about where you are spiritually, doesn't it? Let's, pre- let's pretend for just a minute. Everybody say, we're going to pretend. Okay, thank you. Let's pretend like I have the ability to heal people. Isn't that exciting? I don't, but let's pretend like I do. And my particular ability to heal is I can heal people who have one leg longer than the other one. Because that's a problem in the mountains. From walking around the mountain all day, one leg is longer Some of you will get that later. Okay. You'll just come down here after service, have a special bottle of oil, and I will grow the one leg to the proper length, or I will shrink the one leg back, and you'll be able to stand on level ground without looking like you're about to fall over. Okay? Would you go out and tell people that, and you saw it happen, like you saw me do it. You saw me like somehow in prayer able to lengthen a leg or shorten a leg, whatever was needed. Would that excite you? It would. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. Would you go out and tell people in the community, you're not going to believe what my pastor can do. If you have uneven legs, he can lengthen the one out. It's amazing. I've been to several services. You need to come down. This guy is incredible, right? Would that get your motor going in delight more than, say, the precious child that was saved about four weeks ago and whose name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life? How many did we tell about that, right? Here's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He, he is excited about whenever work is being done and any sort of threat. If you look at this string of things that's given here, I've given you authority to, to, to tread on serpents and scorpions, to have power over the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. He's telling them what? You have the authority and the power. Anything that would mar or destroy the image bearers of God and my Father, I've got, you've got an authority over them as I commission you out. And he says here something else. He said, it's great that you were able to cast out demons. I saw when Satan fell from heaven to earth. I saw Satan cast out of heaven. I saw that. And that was impressive. 
And if we were able to see something like that, we would also find that equally impressive. But then he recalibrates what the excitement should be about, right? Uh, Just a quick point of origin here. As we look at this verse and we think about the authority here over enemies, serpents, scorpions, nothing hurting you. Does this mean that we can have a venomous snake meeting at church and we can all grab our snakes and if they bite you and you die, you weren't one of the faithful. But if you get bit and you live like Paul in the New Testament, then you're one of the faithful. Is that what it's about? No, listen, right? That is being presumptuous on the authority that God gives us. That is being, <laughs> that is putting God to the test, which you're warned about in Scripture, uh, not to do that in a presumptuous characteristic or mindset. I think East Tennessee State actually has one of the largest academic inventories of snake handling in the South. I think it's illegal in Tennessee now, which ironically enough, but uh, lots in West Virginia, I think, still hold to this practice. That's not what he's saying there. Don't grab a, don't go grab a, what's the most common poisonous snake here? A cottonmouth, you think? A copperhead. Don't go grab copperheads and test your faith this afternoon. No, that's not what this verse is necessarily saying. What it is saying is, Jesus has supplied you with everything you need that as you're doing the main important thing, which is reaching out to those who are lost, whatever Satan will throw at you, you have the authority and the ability to overcome it because of what Christ has given you. That's what's being said here, not about testing what is there. Then he goes on and says uh, in these verses, nonetheless... He says, do not rejoice in this. Rejoice in what? All this crazy power over the supernatural. Don't rejoice over that. But he says this, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice. What's it say, church? Read it with me in 20. That your names are written in heaven. This, no doubt, is a reference to the Lamb's book of life that we see in Revelation. This is the record of those who have been converted. Jesus is talking about conversions is what we're after. This is what we're all about here at Grace, right? We want people to see and to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We want them to be converted from a life of sin and death and the weight and the yoke that is a life of sin and put under His yoke that is easy and that is light. We are being converted away from destruction and the judgment that is to come. And we are being converted into a relationship with a mediator who has taken that judgment for certain for us. We are converted and our names are written in heaven. And I like what one preacher said, anytime God takes your name and writes it in the Lamb's book of life, there is not an eraser on the other end of that pen. It is written there permanently, right? The question then is, well, what about this person? Say they were a Christian. They're no longer a Christian. I wouldn't say that their name was erased from the Lamb's book of life and being written in heaven. I would say it was never there to start with. It appeared to be there, but it never was there because we don't see the book. Only the Lord sees it. There is a record that is there. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Then verse 21, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I've already pointed that out, and I wish I could spend more time talking to you about the Trinity, but we see the truth of the Trinity here. All three persons of the, Holy, of, the, of the Holy Trinity are in this verse and engaged and addressed. <clears throat> and what do we see here? These things, what things? What's the previous verse that we just read? Those names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the context. It's a context of conversion. Conversion then is being linked to this. Conversion is being linked to Revelation. 
Conversion happens because God has revealed to you who you are and who he is. We just got done studying Job in my Sunday school class this morning. Just finished up a series on Job. And one of the things we see is he finally admits who God is and his place and position before him. And it was because God had revealed himself in conversation to Job that he gets where he is. Here is the truth and the reality of this verse being hitched to the conversion verse. You cannot reason people into the kingdom of God. You can't do it. You can't reason yourself into the kingdom of God. The gospel must be revealed to you. Do you see that this morning? It must be revealed. Let's ask the next question. Why must the gospel be revealed to you and you not reason yourself into the door? If you reason yourself into the kingdom of heaven, who gets more credit in that equation, you or God? Who? You do. But if it's revealed to you, the gospel, who gets more credit in that scenario? God gets the credit. It's like one of my seminary professors said many years ago. He said, if I had to summarize the Bible to you, it would be simply this. If you get to go to heaven and you are saved and the gospel is revealed to you, God gets all the glory and the credit for that. But if you go to hell, it's your fault. That sounds harsh, but that's the way the scriptures read. That's the truth that's being lent over here, right? And Jesus here tells us, what is he, what is he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in who, is, who it's being revealed to. You know, when the Babylonians came in the Old Testament and they conquered a people, they would take the prettiest and the smartest and the best and the strongest and take them back to Babylon because they were trying to build an ultimate people. Hitler, in his crazed, uh, gospel-rejecting worldview, tried to uh, exterminate the Jewish people and make an Aryan, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, super-strong, perfect human race. There have been multiple other attempts throughout human history of trying to get the wisest the fastest, the strongest, all to pass their genes on and make the perfect human beings. Is this who God is after in this passage? Is God revealing the gospel to those who are in the highest authority, who are the most capable, who are the strongest, and who are the best? No, he's not. Who is he revealing the gospel to? Fickle, distracted fishermen, common folk of the day who hold no offices of authority in the land, right? This is the 72. Hey, by the way, what are the 72 people's names? Do you know? It's not even recorded, is it? Because who they are is not as important as the mission that they're serving. So what do we see here? Jesus is not just looking for the strongest and the best and the brightest and all these things. He is looking for those who have revealed and are faithful to what has been revealed. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> makes me feel a whole lot better. That God is after those who are not necessarily always the top notch. Now, does he save a few that are? Sure he does. Sure he does. But that's not, by and large, the norm that we see here. And I would argue the norm that we see in church history and all the way down here. Those titans of intellect, those wise in the world. You know, you think about people like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller. Those guys come around once in a generation. They're not high in numbers. What are high in number is those faithful followers like the 72, like you and like me. Okay. Verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows except the son with the father 
and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone who, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I, I want you to see that there's this, this theology of revelation is critical because not only is this set against reasoning, there is an anticipation in the Bible to who would be revealed that Jesus was the Messiah. Don't you understand? If you go back in the Old Testament, when, when the serpent deceived Eve in the garden and our, our ancient parents, Adam and Eve, were there, when that serpent convinced Eve and she fell in temptation and then Adam did nothing to stand in the way, making him just as culpable as Eve in that whole equation. And then it says that the first prophecy of Christ's coming, the first revelation there would be a Messiah to be here, the man, the woman's child will crush the head of the serpent. There is a longing to, for Christ to be revealed and to come. When Abraham's only son is given to him. They tried another way and it didn't work. And they finally have Isaac. And he lifts the knife up. And he is ready to plant this knife into, his, into the stomach and chest of the child that he loves dearly. And sacrifice that child. He is looking forward for a revealed Messiah who will be able to be a sacrifice that is offered that will be once and for all. Don't you see that this David is planning the temple that he wants to build, the place for the presence of God to dwell with men. As he is planning and thinking through that, he is longing for a king that will come who will have a temple that will never be destroyed because the, plant, the temple that David is planning will one day fall. As time progresses, bad king after bad king, as Hezekiah comes out, one of the great reformers, one of the most faithful kings, in the Old Testament. He longs to see a day when a king will come who is not corrupt like his father Ahaz, but he wants to see the long-awaited king, the seed of David, revealed so that he may worship God, have an atonement, and give praise to him. Beloved, don't you see? This Jesus is the one the prophets wrote about that Isaiah uh, told us would come and be born of a virgin. This is the Jesus that is being revealed to you today, whom the prophets for thousands of years, alongside of the kings that they served with, long to see. He is being revealed now. You know, if you go back to last week's sermon, you listen, you see that Judgment is passed in the Old Testament on Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are considered awful, wretched cities of their day. There is a collective sin that must be paid for and that God's judgment will overflow and destroy. When you think about modern days, some of our most corrupt cities, you may think, I understand in San Francisco they just legalized theft. Anything under $950, they don't even call the cops for now in San Francisco. How'd you like that, huh? I've got friends that live there. You walk around with your cell phone looking at it on a tramway. They just snatch it out of your hand. It's just gone. There's no repercussion for the person that took it. <laughs> it's also the home to several movements that we would label grossly opposed to a biblical worldview. Right? But what does Jesus say? If you reject me, the revealed Christ, it will be better on the day of judgment, which is coming, for Tyre... For Sidon, 
for Sodom, for Gomorrah, for San Francisco, it will be better for them than it will be for you. You see, the great sin in this passage, in these 24 verses, is disbelief in who Jesus is. And the reverse of that is simply this. Jesus has been revealed. Don't turn your back on the thing that prophets and kings have longed to see for thousands of years. If disbelief is the great sin, then surely faith in Christ must be the great act of obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text today. Lord, we are convinced and convicted that we need you desperately now. Lord, may we never turn our back on the thing that these kings and prophets of old longed to see, that they spent their entire lives growing into old age, multiple generations after them, never having the chance to see the, re- the revelation of who Jesus is. And here today, you have revealed yourself to us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you have been gracious to us to show to us what thousands before us longed to see, the face of Christ the one who would bear our sins, the only substitute which was perfect in every way. Lord, help us now to have a faith that is a faith that is convinced, a faith that is delighting in who you are, a faith that when other Christians come in contact with us, it sparks a delight with them, God. Help us to battle cynicism in our own hearts with the joy of what it means to know the revealed Jesus of Scripture. In your name we pray, amen. If you're here this morning, you've heard the gospel preached. All that is needed to accept this revealed Christ is simply to repent and believe. Won't you do that today as we sing in response? I'll be in the back to talk to you and receive you as we sing. Please stand.